Uh, it's been a blessing, uh, this congregation already to us. Uh, Jeremy and I became friends. Even before I moved here, I reached out to him and uh, told me to move here, and he was just uh, very supportive and encouraging all along the way. I meet with he and some other pastors every few weeks over lunch, and uh, it's just been a huge blessing, and we've gotten to know more and more people. In this congregation, my wife comes uh, every Thursday morning. I failed to mention that in the opening uh, hour of worship, and she's part of the, the Moms Together group, and so our whole family's been blessed, and we're, we're deeply grateful for partnership uh, in the gospel for the sake of the South Shore. Uh, you can turn in your Bibles. We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, you can find that, I believe, in the Pew Bible on page... Uh, 1157. 1157. I don't know if some of you noticed around town, uh, around the city, for a number of months there, there were these billboards up. Uh, they were advertising an exhibit that was going on at the Boston Museum of Science. A big, big, huge billboards that would say, A Day in Pompeii, inviting you to come uh, and see this exhibit they have. I think it's been replaced by like bonsai trees and geckos. Uh, but uh, it was there for a few months, a day in Pompeii. Pompeii is uh, this ancient uh, city that uh, is in the Bay of Naples in modern-day Italy. And uh, if you've ever been there, I had a chance to when I was in college on foreign study. Uh, there's something you just can't miss. I mean, it's just it's so obvious uh, when you're around Naples and Pompeii. Right there in front of you, you can't miss it. It's all in the shadow of this gigantic mountain. The mountain is called Vesuvius. And uh, Vesuvius is not only a mountain, it's also uh, an active volcano, even to this day. And uh, the city is known because in 79 AD, uh, the volcano Vesuvius erupted, and uh, it literally buried the city in ash and pumice up to 20 feet in certain places. And for, for 1,700 years, it was basically uh, wiped off the face. No one even knew it existed. They just happened to uh, rediscover it, and they excavated it, and now a lot of that's been preserved. And so it's quite fascinating. It's still known now, even today, as the most dangerous, the deadliest uh, volcano in the world, uh, partly because it's still active, but also because there's so many people that live uh, in and around there in the Bay of Naples, over 3 million people. But right near uh, the base, even, there is this area the Italians called the Zona Rossa, the, the red zone, because there's basically 600,000 people that live there at the, at the foot of the mountain, and they're fearful. They don't, they're discouraging people from moving and relocating there because they are concerned that they wouldn't be able to evacuate those and that many people if the volcano were to ever erupt again. And it did, actually, in 1944, although not many were, were damaged because of that eruption. Why do, I, why do I highlight that except to say uh, we're talking about a mountain that is uh, of great uh, significance uh, and, and well. Let's just propose this, okay? I didn't actually do this, but let's say you were to go to Vesuvius, walk around uh, the, the modern-day city there at the foot, and just ask people. If you were to go to them and say, hey, you see that mountain over there, what do you think about it? Well, I would dare say you would find some people that have some opinions, some, some speculations, maybe even some concerns, you know? I'm, I'm, I'm concerned that it would ruin my home if it were uh, to erupt. I'm concerned about my life here, but you know, you might walk into a, a storefront and uh, there's, there's millions of tourists that make their way every year. You might walk into a shop owner and say, hey, what do you think about that mountain over there? And he may say, well, thanks to that mountain, I have sold a lot of gelato and t-shirts, you know? I love the mountain. What can I say? You know, and others may say, as I mentioned, that they're concerned about their home. But nevertheless, one thing I can guarantee you wouldn't find if you were to walk around that city and ask, what do you think of that mountain over there? You wouldn't find any ignorance or indifference or apathy. But 
I would dare say that what you believe, what you think, what you conclude in relationship because of this colossal mountain is of importance if you live there. I mean, it, it is what you deduce and conclude concerning this, this giant mountain is of consequence, what you conclude. It does matter what you think. In fact, what you think about that and, and the nature of it uh, may be to your own peril or what you don't believe concerning that mountain. Why do I highlight that except to say that just a few generations before Vesuvius erupted in 79 AD, there was another colossal event Uh, the effects of which we still see and experience to this very day. It's the reason that we're gathered today on the Lord's Day. And that is the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus and the resurrection of Christ. Those two things are so colossal. And in a similar fashion, we ought to be able to go to people and say, what do you think of that event? What what, What do you conclude concerning this? And what they conclude and what you and I conclude is of import. It is of consequence what we conclude, is it not? It's a, it's a significant thing, right? And the cross of Christ is a beautiful thing. And you may say that you're indifferent or apathetic this morning towards it. I, I understand. Maybe you're cold. Maybe you think, you know, that doesn't have anything to do with my life right now. I don't know what I believe can clear. If that's you, honestly, if that's where you are this morning, hang with me, okay? I, I want us to look at God's word. And maybe even I could appeal to this. What do you believe about the nature of love? Because I want to remind you this morning that Christ loves you. Even if you're cold-hearted right now, okay? Christ loves you. He loves you. And we all know that love, and you have conclusions and ideas and thoughts about the nature of love, the dynamics of love, your need for love. The difficulty it is to love people. But we know that love is difficult partly because it involves action. It's a verb, right? It's not just a sentimentality. It's not just a, a vague emotional thing. It's not a phrase that we just utter. True love by nature is action. It is a verb, right? And Jesus loves you. Now, Jesus never says in the New Testament, there's no place that he says, I love you. You know, he doesn't need to, you know, because Christ lives a life on behalf of his people, and he accompanies it with action, does he not? In fact, the way that Jesus says, I love you, and communicates that affection is not in those three words, I love you, but instead this, it is finished. As if to say, it is finished. As he breathes his last on the cross, I have accomplished my mission. I have fulfilled the work that you have given me, and I'm reconciling these people to you, Father. Now, the father needs to say something, right? What, what does the father need to say? God, the father needs to say amen to Christ's work. It is finished, and he does that through the empty tomb because it was God the father who raised Jesus from the dead as we celebrated all the more last week, and we continue every Lord's Day. The cross and, and the empty tomb to us are this colossal thing. And what you believe concerning it is of consequence. It reconciles us to God. It reconciles us to one another. And it should. It ought to compel us to go and to share that with other people. It is my, it is my desire. It is my hunger. It is my, my, my pressing, ongoing uh, priority to see that people come and, and experience as we live here in the shadow of this great event, the love of Jesus and the riches of Christ. We're going to look at God's, this is going to be a really long introduction, I realize that. I'm I'm getting into a whole new sermon here, I'm sorry about that. I think if we anchor ourselves so, and I'm excited, you know, I look out, I see this this wonderful church, faithful to the gospel, 
Um, you know, what can I say? I, I, I'm getting fired up, you know. Our church is like 60 people. Uh, you know, a tenth of that, uh, 10% of that, I should say, is, is my own family. Um, but Christ, Christ will build uh, his church, and uh, the gates of hell will not prevail against her. We're reminded of this, amongst other things, if you would look with me at Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. This is the Apostle Paul talking. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am, the, I am less than the least of all God's people, This grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. It was his intent. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. And I'll pause there just to note that Paul is writing this from a prison. He's under, uh, he, he's, you know, under persecution. He's imprisoned, and he's writing to uh, the church there in Ephesus. Continuing on, verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father as he prays for them. Verse 15, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now let me just say a a brief word here about uh, the author and about the context in which he writes into. The Apostle Paul who uh, previously we know to be Saul of Tarsus, was one who despised Jesus. And specifically his followers, whether they were from a Jewish or a Gentile background, didn't matter. He was out, he despised them, he was out to persecute and uh, to take them. And it is here that we discover he is making some reference to himself. Look with me at verse 8. What does he say concerning himself? Although I am less than the least of all God's people. Now, that's actually a pretty accurate rendering uh, from the original language, although in English, uh, you, you know, this is grammatically not making sense because he's using comparative language lesser with superlative language the, the least, which I don't know, how do you exactly do that? You know, how can you be less than the least? But you get the point, right? He's, he's conveying, he's communicating, well, his posture, and that is one of humility, and it, it, it kind of, you know, sh- it shouts back to First Timothy where he writes to Timothy there in chapter 1, verse, verse, verse 15, when he says, Timothy, here's a trustworthy saying deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst or the chief or the foremost, depending on the translation. He has this humble posture. He understands who he is. And it's not that he's comparing himself saying, oh, I'm the, I'm the lesser of this person or that person. He's not even looking out horizontally, 
vertically, he knows of himself before a holy and upright God, and he just can't imagine that anyone is worse than he is. And so he writes with this knowledge, and he challenges them even with that humility. In Ephesus, the city that he writes to and the churches that he writes to there, in Ephesus, Ephesus was a port city. It was known for education and entertainment uh, and a great deal of immorality, quite honestly, even idolatry because there was in that day and age a a great temple to the goddess uh, Artemis. And and basically, it was one of the seven wonders of the man-made world at that time. Now, if you go back to to Ephesus now in modern-day Turkey, uh, there's a number of things still preserved and, uh, and excavated, but the, the temple to the goddess uh, Artemis is no longer there. In fact, where is the worship of, of Greek deities this day and age? Well, I think they've been supplanted. I think they've been replaced with a host of other, perhaps more subtle, but nevertheless as deadly and lethal idolatries that exist. And we know this is true in our own culture. It still pervades our own heart as we uh, no, in our own sin and unbelief. But nevertheless, he writes into this context, that temple uh, to the, uh, the Greek goddess Artemis is no longer there. It's been demolished. It's just been dismantled, and it's been used for streets and, uh, and other structures that were built. But not so the church. Brothers and sisters, the church is a living organism. It is not a building. Uh, maybe I'm reminding you of this. It is not merely an institution, although it is. It is more than that. It is also a living organism that Christ is prospering by the power of his spirit accompanied with the word all around the world. And we may say it doesn't seem to feel that way where I live, you know, in my my neighborhood and my network of friends. But if you look elsewhere in the world right now, Christ's church is flourishing and it's expanding. I was learning uh, last month, I was at a, I'm on the the board of a mission agency. We were learning about how the gospel is going forward in, in Nepal. And just in the last 50 to 60 years, the number of churches that have been planted and the people gathering to worship Jesus is unbelievable. It's such a beautiful testimony. You could say the same of places in South America and elsewhere around the world. And it's such a great testimony to Christ's promise that he will and he does build his church. Now, I want us to focus uh, this morning on two things. Because you and I are, are the church. We are the body of Christ. There's a number of metaphors that we see in the scriptures that pertain to the church. We're referred to as the flock of God or the house of God or the bride of Christ or the body of Christ. And I want to uh, touch on two. One of them is not necessarily uh, scriptural. It's maybe a little more political and practical for our understanding. Uh, and the other one is, uh, the, is just what I mentioned, the body of Christ, which uh, is explicit in scriptures. But why does God care about his church. Why does Christ care about his bride? Look at the text here. Because it's through his bride. Look, verse 10, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known. Skip down to verse 21. What does it say there? To him be glory in the church. That The church can refer to a lot of things. And one of those is, they, is the actual local expression, uh, a place where there is word, discipline, and sacrament. People gathered to worship God. The, the different, you know, I, I jokingly referred to someone uh, after the service that, you know, we view this as, you know, we're part of the same bank, our church, our congregation, we're all part of the same bank, different branch. And, and South Shore Baptist is one of those. But you are a local body of believers. Now, Christ cares a great deal about his church universal, but even locally as they carry out this mission. But you're going to need something, a reminder to carry out that mission that you might be the manifold wisdom of God, that you might be the glory of 
uh, of Christ for, for others and reflected back to himself. And you need some reminders, okay? Two of them this morning, right? These two, and they're accompanied to the metaphors that I'm re- referencing. The first thing I think we can grapple with and appreciate here is the riches of Christ. The riches of Christ to function as an embassy, the church as an embassy. The second one, if you were to take notes, these are my headings. The second one is the love of Christ to function as a body or as a family, okay? So let's first look here at the riches of Christ. Look with me at the second part of verse 8 here in our text. This grace, Paul writes, was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. It's beyond what we can understand, these, these great riches. Then looking further down, verse 16, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you, Paul writes. Now, the, the riches of God, these are, are far, they're, they're, they're present and they're future. The riches of God in the present we know are, are truth and favor and forgiveness and righteousness, but there's something in the not yet, is there not? The not yet is a great inheritance that far outweighs anything that we, we could even imagine or fathom, right? I mean, it's beyond what, whatever golf resort in the Caribbean we might inherit. You know, for me, it would be a ski resort, but you know, that's just an aside. But, uh, you know, what are these, these riches? They are in, they're immeasurable, they're innumerable, they're unsearchable, they're, they're inexhaustible. I mean, you could go on and on and on. We can't even fathom. We would need strength just to comprehend what they are, to get a glimpse of them. The riches of Christ. And it is those riches of Christ that enable us, they empower us, they embolden us uh, to go and remind people what they can discover. Because if we don't, well, the only analogy I can, I can think of that it's likened to is this. Imagine, if you would, a, a group of, of scientists, researchers, uh, medical professionals who come together, collaborate. This group forms a vaccine that can protect against lethal deadly diseases common to man. And what do they do except hoard it just for their own families? We would say that that is not being a steward of the resources and riches, right, that they had discovered. So too with the gospel of Jesus, is it not? One of the reasons that we decided to name our church uh, Grace is, well, for me, I wanted our people to be able to communicate in in a concise way what we're about. You know, Grace... If you want to summarize a a concise way to understand grace, you can use this acrostic. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Maybe you've heard that before. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. It's it's the thing that we can go and share in in a concise way with other people, what that really means and communicates. Um, His grace is so rich and abundant. And we, as we mentioned, are called to be stewards of those riches. Now, when we understand that that inheritance, we as children of God the Father, we understand that that inheritance secures for us the kingdom of God, which makes us citizens of another place. And so the church is in one sense, even though the analogy and the metaphor breaks down somewhere, is like an embassy. You know, what is an embassy, right? An embassy is basically a a, a haven, so to speak, that is uh, is placed in different uh, parts of the world in foreign lands, that helps to serve as a haven for the citizens of their country in that particular place. Now, the church happens to be somewhat like that. Because why? I mean, our citizenship is 
with the kingdom of God, even though our residence, maybe our address is here, our home is elsewhere. And our, our home is not yet. The kingdom of God will be coming down to a new heavens and a new earth. And as we wait for that, we, we have this embassy, which is uh, the church, so to speak. So we function like an embassy, except in kind of an upside down, backwards way. What do I mean by that? Except to say, we don't exist just for the citizens of the kingdom. We exist as an embassy for the sake of the good of those who are not yet citizens of the kingdom of God. So we function in that, in view of the riches that we enjoy as his children, that Christ has sought for us. And those riches go and empower us. Wherever you are, whatever your context, I don't know your calling, I don't know your neighborhood, I don't know your network, your, your family, but God has placed you there. He has placed you there to testify to those riches. It's something I hungered to see in my own neighborhood, right there on my own street even. And God in his mercy and the power of his spirit, as we have been hospitable and reached out to people, we've seen folks come to faith, including one of our neighbors, Robin, miraculously converted out of secular Judaism. And her husband, they've been baptized in our church along with, uh, with others this past six months we've seen come to faith. It's a beautiful thing. My, my immediate next door neighbor, I'm praying for him. His name is Phil. Phil is probably close to 70 years old. He's in terrible health. Um, it leaves him pretty much confined to the house most of the time. Phil's a lot of times just in bed. And uh, I've developed a friendship with Phil. Phil has his wife there with him and his son, but, but I know he's lonely. And I know he's in a great deal of pain, although he seldom ever makes mention of it. And so I'll go over and visit with him. You know, a lot of times I just go and I just listen to Phil's stories. Phil grew up on the South Shore in different towns, and, and he'll just talk all about the history and the changes and his experiences. And, and I just listen to Phil. And then from time to time, I know he's in pain. I say, Phil, can, can, I, can I just pray for you? And, and he says, sure. You know, and, and, uh, and sometimes I'll even read scripture to him. And he lets me do that. And one time I, w- I was sharing with him, you know, he's kind of fascinated with this whole church startup thing. I'm invited him to come. I, I promised that we had a really good coffee and an extremely good looking violinist. That's my wife. Um, and uh, so he's kind of amazed by this whole thing. I don't think he's ever been to a gospel preaching church in his whole life, but I'm here and I'm explaining to him the gospel, the, the good news of Jesus. And um, I, in fact, I told him, I said, Phil, you know what? The gospel is actually a word that means good news. And he looked at me right in the eyes and he said, I have never heard that in my entire life. And I suspect that there are a lot of people around this area, he said, who have never heard that good news. I came back to Phil this week. Um, he had been in a small accident. I wanted to go check on him. I said, Phil, how you doing? We started talking. Uh, I just caught up with him and said, hey, can I pray for you? I know, you know, you're in a lot of pain. He said, sure. And somewhere in the midst of the prayer, I must have confessed that, that I'm a sinner in need of grace. And I said, amen. I got to the end of the prayer. He said, sinner. I said, yeah, yeah, that's me. Um, he says, I, I guess we're all sinners, aren't we? I said, yes. I said, but we can be reconciled to God. And I went to explain to him, that he can experience the riches and the love of God, not on the basis of his record, but Christ's record. He says, I need to think about that. I need to contemplate that. Would you pray for this man? 
I'd love for him to be healed. But I plead that you would pray for his soul. The riches of Christ, that we would serve as the church an embassy for those who are not yet. Because people like Phil think that his glory days, his riches are behind him. And that's not true if he would repent and believe. The riches of Christ to be an embassy. The love of Christ, my next heading here, to be a body, a family. Look again at the text here, verse 17. He prays. This is his desire for them. Paul writes, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love. And then look down at verse 19. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. And it's almost in a similar way, you know, like the riches of God that are, are, are immeasurable, innumerable, they're unsearchable. You know, it's the same way. It surpasses knowledge, the love of God in Christ. Well, you know, we can't, even, we can't even put our minds, we can't even begin to comprehend, only slowly apprehend what that means. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, love, it requires action because it's a verb. Love requires something else too, doesn't it? It requires a context. You know, because we, we, we can talk about, you know, the love of God in Christ and how we experience that, you know, somewhat in a vertical way. But we know that it has to have an outworking, no? Horizontally, in relationship with other people, as difficult as that may be from time to time, that's the arena. Brothers and sisters, the arena is set. It is the church of Christ where we are to live out this love, this calling to love our neighbor, and then to extend that out even beyond as difficult as as it may be. What does it say here in our text? What is the context for us to live out and to understand and to appreciate and to apply this love that is beyond comprehension? Verse 18, what does it say? He wants them to be rooted and established in love. Verse 18, that they may have power together with all the saints. The church, my friends, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of of Christ. This is a beautiful thing, you know. It's a sweet opportunity. Don't miss out on it. You know, some people say, I don't want to go to church today. I don't think I'm going to get anything out of it. Maybe someone will get something out of you being there, listening to them, serving them, saying an encouraging word to them. And you and I need to be reminded of the riches, even when it gets warm outside, right? People say, I'm not sure I'm going to make it to church today. I think I hear the beach calling. That's not the case. Friends, as we move into the warm weather, I'm not your pastor, so I'm not particularly calling out one of you. I don't know you. But but don't put church on the shelf for the summer. You know? I mean, this is a beautiful thing you have here in the body of Christ. And you could come together and experience and apply the love of Christ, not nine months out of the year, but 12 months out of the year. I had to get on that little side note there. Sorry. It, just, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was easy and, and tempting. Why? Because we come, and there's this arena, the body of Christ, the manifold wisdom. What, is the, what does the verse here say? Look again at verse 10. His intent was that through the church, the manifold wisdom. That word in the original language means literally the, the multi-sided, right? So what is he saying here except that God wanted to put on display a group of people 
who live together regardless of their background, their gifts, their struggles, their blind spots, their weaknesses, their preferences, their socioeconomic standing, uh, their spiritual maturity, whatever it is, he wants them to come together as this diverse body um, to live out in, in basically a theater of the, the body, his, his bride, that they would live together and love one another. He desires that for you. He desires that for me as the body of Christ, so that his wisdom and his grace may be on display. People who offend one another, who hurt one another, but then forgive and live in a humble, understanding way. And if you understand that love, I'm convinced that that will empower you to go and share with other people because you have a secure standing. Let me say a few things just by way of reminder and then in conclusion, some practicals for you, okay? What am I talking about here? I believe our calling as we're instructed, amongst other things in this text, to understand, to grasp the riches of Christ so that we would live out as an embassy, not not to escape where we live, but in and for the community that we live in, right? To extend those riches. And then also to understand and grasp the love of Christ to live as a body of believers. And that that would be an anchor for us in the power of the gospel. And when that anchor is formed, when we are constituted and we are, we are, we are consecrated in that, I believe that we have a genuine, humble boldness or a bold humility to go out with this. So maybe some practicals for you. Maybe just, you know, a few points. As you say, well, okay, well, what am I supposed to do with this in relationship? Where do I even begin? Where do I start? Well, start maybe with this. How is it that you can incorporate into your speech, into your conversation, uh, words of Christ, how grateful you are to God. You know, and talking with other people, regardless of of where they come from, just seasoning your speech. I'm not talking about morality because people don't care about your disdain uh, for their language and their behavior and their policy, whatever. People don't want to hear about uh, your self-righteous morality as they see it, but they they may want to hear about how you're so grateful to God I've been asking people ever since we moved here a year and a half ago, I ask people from time to time that I meet somewhere between Weymouth and Plymouth, I've asked a bunch of people this. Do you believe that God loves you? Do you believe that God loves you? You know, some people, they look at me and they say, well, yeah, I think, I think he does. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I'd like to think that he does. Well, why, why do you ask? You know, do you believe God loves you? I do, but I can't believe he does. Let me tell you about him. Now you say, well, I don't even know where to start and who to start asking that question with or seasoning that conversation with. Would you begin praying for just one person? Maybe somebody you already know and maybe somebody you don't yet know. Just pray for one person. God, would you open a door, an opportunity, a conversation to point them to that colossal event, that beautiful, sweet thing that we live in the shadow of, the crucifixion and the resurrection that you could point them and say, hey, what do you think about that? What do you think happened when Christ... I see a cross on your neck. What do you think happened on that Friday? I I don't know. Pray for an opportunity. Invite people to church. Invite people to come to church. And then when they reject you, you know, wait about six months and invite them back again. Hey, we got a special event going on or whatever, you know? Just don't worry about the awkwardness. Keep loving them. Keep inviting them. Maybe you don't want to invite them to church. Invite them to be around other believers. Next time you have, you know, a dinner or a cookout or an event, be intentional, right? 
Go, go invite someone who doesn't yet know of the love of Christ to come around and, and be around the body just to experience how you love one another and how you're, you're mostly normal if you don't invite Jeremy to come. You know, so, um, so, you know, you have these events or whatever and you invite people to come. Part of our gospel witness, is it not, to bring people around uh, the body and the love of Christ applied in this, uh, the context of the church. And then lastly, invite someone to read the scriptures with you. you know, maybe maybe you, you, you say, look, I've just, people are inviting me all the time to read the Hunger Games. Why not the Gospel of Luke, right? So come, I listen, listen, say to your friend, your coworker, hey, over lunch, I'm starting to read through the Gospel of Luke. Hey, you want to read it with me? Maybe we could meet in a couple weeks and, and talk about what you've discovered so far. I don't know. Come talk to me. I'd love to, to speak of resources on how to do that. But I know how it is. And you may say, what's well, easier for you to talk about Jesus with other people? Not always. I'm telling you. I, don't, I, I like to be liked. Surprise. Um, you know, I don't like rejection. This past week, or actually I guess it was the week before, before Easter, I had printed up these, these invitations. I really wanted people to come to our church service, uh, hear the gospel. And uh, so, you know, I had these printed up. And uh, I slid a few in my pocket on the Saturday before because, you know, I knew I'd be on the soccer field coaching. And I've got friendships, you know, relationships with people out there, and I wanted to invite them. And, and, uh, and so I did, and I invited a couple of, uh, of the dads uh, to come to our church. And, uh, and they looked at me a little bit funny, which I've kind of gotten used to because of the southern accent thing. But, um, but, but I know why they were looking at me funny. And some of their remarks, you know, um, you know, it was, it, was, it was a little bit, you know, of a rejection. And, uh, and you know, I'm, Usually that's okay, you know. It's not the first time I've been a fool for Jesus. It won't be the last time. But for some reason, it just, it just bothered me. I wasn't angry. But I just, um, I hated the feeling. I despised it. And I got in the minivan. And as I drove away, I just, oh, I hate the way that I feel right now. And it was almost as if God had just came and reminded me. He didn't audibly speak to me, but it's almost as if the Spirit was prompting me, reminding me, Troy, don't you despise that feeling? Because I was feeling needy. I was, I was, feeling, I was feeling rejected and broken. And I needed the gospel. Friends, don't try to do what Jesus calls you to do without Jesus. And, and as I felt that terrible feeling, and I, I just was so uncomfortable, and I was despising it, it was almost as if he reminded me, don't you despise that feeling, Troy. Because though there are some who don't like you, and they definitely don't like your message, there is someone who loves you. And you have a Savior who was stricken, smitten, and afflicted so that you might have peace. And there are other people that need to know of this Savior. Friends, if we understand the riches of Christ, the love of Christ, it ought to compel us to go forward with a humble boldness. And we have this promise, you know. We have this hope. We have this assurance We have this rich truth. If you would look in closing, verse 20 of our text, it's right there. He's going to do it. He will. He will, I pray, 
bring renewal and revival to New England. I long to see it. Lives changed. Lost souls to Christ. Verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Father, you know our hearts. You know our hearts better than we do. And we struggle with apathy. We struggle with indifference. Sometimes we struggle with insecurity. But I pray that we would be rooted and grounded in your love. I pray that our identity would be anchored in the person and the work of Jesus. Lord, what a sweet shadow we live in. The hope of the resurrection. Pray that it bring power. I'm so grateful, God. So grateful for your word. Accompany it right now, Holy Spirit. Do what you do best in pointing us to Jesus. And I pray that you would guide and prompt and lead this group of people, this congregation. I'm so grateful for the longstanding witness of South Shore Baptist. Lord, would you bless and prosper this church? Please, I, I would plead individually for all of these people and corporately together, would they continue to press on with faithfulness, preaching, proclaiming, living out this gospel of grace, good news, for we know it is your riches at Christ's expense. We pray that you would do all this, not because we pray with sincerity, but we pray in the strong name of Jesus, the good shepherd. Amen.